Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Sophocles. What is it, Marty? I'm swamped. I got no time to talk to my agent. We gotta talk about this Oedipus play. What's wrong with it? It's a great play. Have you seen the Rotten Grape Leaf score? It's 16%. Bunch of morons. Maybe, could we talk about some changes? Like what? Am I getting this right that he kind of, well, he, uh, he, he does his mother? Because they don't like that. That's the whole point. Okay, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, he also kills his father. Spoiler. Can we give the audiences something? Audiences like it if the couple gets together at the end. Him and his mother? Right. Point taken. That's a no-go. <laughs> Come on, Sophie, give me something. I did have one idea for a rewrite. Yeah? After he does all this stuff, he, he turns his gaze to Olympus and he says to the gods, Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. I love it. Let's go with that. Meanwhile, on the nose today, the panel will go after an 86% bruised banana rating. And now the old Colin can't come to the phone right now, so here's the new Colin McEnroe. Yeah, the old Colin's dead, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, so uh, I swear, I promise, before I even introduce the panel, I promise we're really not going to talk about Taylor Swift, not for real, again, after having talked about her two weeks ago. However, we are going to have to stray into... Taylor Swift-infested waters, uh, one might say. Uh, but first of all, let me tell you who's here. That's the most exciting part, of course. Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, many other things, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Irene Papoulis, who teaches writing at Trinity College. Kate Russian, uh, teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. So uh, in the second segment today, we'll do that first, uh, we're going to talk about a movie that we all saw. I probably loved it more than everybody else did, but that's good because we'll have some areas of friction. Uh, it's called Wind River. It is um, sort of a, a noir movie with snow, uh, with lots of snow. Uh, it takes place on an Indian reservation. It's a, both a thriller and an examination uh, of social problems among Native Americans um, and a bunch of other things as well. So we'll come to that. In the first segment, we're going to combine two ideas. Um, one of them is a much debated uh, essay by critic Mark Harris, uh, writing in New York Magazine about um, well, it's it's about a bunch of different things, but it's the the headline, the provocative uh, tweet engendering headline is Taylor Swift's "Look What You Made Me Do" is the first pure piece of Trump era pop art. A little bit later, we're also going to talk about the role that Rotten Tomatoes and ratings like it are now playing in the success or failure of movies. That they may be pinned much more tightly uh, to movies than they ever have been before. But let's begin with this uh, this essay. It's not really an essay about Taylor Swift. I think what it really is is well, for example, he says when we talk about pop culture in the age of Trump. We tend to mean art of the self-styled resistance. But what about the stuff that history will record as epitomizing our time rather than raising a fist against it? The phrase Reagan-era culture doesn't call to mind David Lynch's Blue Velvet or Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart. It's dynasties, slavering fetishization of wealth, power, and conspicuous consumption, or the lubed militarism of Top Gun. 
then he – well, anyway, maybe we can just stop there. And he's got a whole bunch of different examples of what he feels as though uh, is culture that's emblematic of this moment and, and that is feeding off the moment and being fed off of by the moment. He actually starts out with, out with the Mayweather-McGregor fight before winding his way towards, among other things, Taylor Swift. But so, Irene Papoulos, I'm going to start off with you. What, first of all, what about that idea that in any given moment – there, there is culture that's produced kind of on the spot that either plugs into a fairly dark energy of the moment or is a canvas onto which the dark energy of the moment paints. Does any of that make sense to you? Uh, yeah. Or if I said it more sensibly, would it make sense to you? Yeah. So that is sort of a prelude to talking about the actual content of what of, – of the art of what look what you made me do, which I think is interesting. Yeah, first of all, I think it is true that we think of dynasty when we think of the eighties. Mm. I never and, and we don't think of blue velvet for the most part. And you know, w- was that because dynasty kind of? Ca- yeah, it, I guess it is because dynasty epitomized the greed. So is it you know and so it's sort of like is it the fact that that thing is elevated at the time, or is it that the person who who created that thing is responding to the culture? You know, is kind of. I don't know, to me, an interesting question, but it does seem to epitome, I, I, I kind of get his point, you know, that there is, but, but why is it that the, that the most sort of vulgar, is, vulgar, quote unquote, elements of an era are the ones that define it? You know, he doesn't really get into why that would be. Does well, it, and yeah. it, it could depend on the era too. I mean, an era that's yeah. sort of heavily invested in materialism or conflict. I mean, so, well, so, Kate, that then that then raises that this next question is: Is it reasonable to point to say the McGregor Mayweather fight or, or to a, a Taylor Swift song and say, yeah, somehow or other, this this either sums up the moment we're in right now, or is almost a sort of you know fecal like byproduct of the moment that we're in right now? Well, you know, I'll 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 speak about the Mayweather McGregor fight. Um, because I, I saw it, and uh, it, it was a spectacle that involved millions and millions of dollars, no matter who won or who lost. Uh, and it took place between uh, the fight took place between a champion, undefeated boxer, and a mixed martial arts guy. Did you see it because you wanted to, or because somehow you were forced to? <laughs> I just happened to be in the bar in that bar. Um. That that evening, and as opposed uh, to strapped to a chair with yeah, her eyelids yeah. taped open, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, um, there are all these debates about boxing: is it the sweet science or is it just brutal blood sport? But then you put together a very skilled boxer with a mixed martial arts guy who just basically knocks everything out of everybody he touches. There's really no competition because, of course, Mayweather won. And so what was this all about? It was just about the spectacle and the money, period. So this fight was like the Shark Week Phelps versus White Shark race. It was kind of the same A beautiful analogy and only one that only you could have come up with. So, so Carolyn, what I I think is just to build on what Kate's saying here is if, in fact, these things are all of a piece, and I would be happy to throw Phelps versus Shark uh, into that uh, tank, uh, is – that these things are illusions, right? That if they're products of the Trump era, they're products 
their their illusions that there was no, as Kate is saying, no real serious contest between McGregor and, and Mayweather, except obviously the symbolic one between uh, a white guy and a black guy, and each one of them walking around with some pretty weird issues. Um, and, and, and any more than Apprentice was really a serious evaluation of managerial talent, uh, any more than, than the beefs that are the, the subtext of look what you made me do with Kanye West and Katy Perry and God knows who else uh, and Taylor Swift are, are I think anything other than kabuki that allows everybody to march off to the bank laughing. I don't know. I mean – you said that you thought the Taylor Swift thing, which we are about to play in just a second, but you can talk first so it won't put you in a horrible mood, um, was smacking people in the face with symbolism. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do think that the Trump era, if it is, if we're going to look at it from a cultural standpoint, I think for me and for what it's done for for me as somebody like creating art and, and it has changed like the course of what I'm interested in, what I, I think that this is a peak time for comedy that is looking to make itself relevant and a response to things. And I think that we also, not just comedy that is responding to this, but comedy that is so, or entertainment that is giving us something to do, not like, you know, that is not sitting around and feeling stressed and feeling overwhelmed or feeling, I think that we are looking for things to occupy our mind. And I think that having things like, uh, you know, Michael Phelps race a great a great white or I guess this fight, which I, I didn't watch, although my neighbor did try to knock on my door and get me to come watch it. <laughs> but I had no idea what they were talking about at Not the time. Been, I hope. <laughs> um. But I, I think that there is, I think that that is what, where we are at culturally. I think that that is what we're going to look back on as this era as of things that are these kind of great distractions. Well, are they just distractions, Kate, or, or are they things that, in fact, I, I think they're more than distractions. I think there are ways that kind of scratch at the same weird Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, they are things that yeah. get, get us thinking and, and, and but are helping feel us cope. Real. Yeah. It feels real. I, I guess what, what I don't see is how this era is different from previous eras of American culture that were all about the brand all about money, all about accumulation of wealth, all about distracting us from whatever is right in front of our face at the time during any any generation. So do you see the fight as an emblem of something that's not it's a that's particularly now or you don't see it as particularly well, I, now? I don't see how it's different from uh, Spectacles of the fifties, sixties, seventies, or eighties. And 90s. I think you're. I think it's a great point that you're making. And and Don King, decades ago, said white guy against black guy. Your box office just automatically goes up. I mean, control for all other variables. That's not a phrase Don used. But uh, you know, your your box office just goes up. And and that's true in the eighties, nineties. You know, I mean. It, it, but at least they they followed the rules. At they least had, they were both they boxers. Had, they had two boxers. So yeah. so Irene, let's now hear um, uh, the I don't know exhibit A in our our array of evidence here. Uh, this is the aforementioned earworm. I don't like your little games. Don't like your tilted stage. The role you made me play. The fool. No, I don't like you. I don't like your perfect crime. How you laugh when you lie. You said the gun was mine. Isn't cool. No, I don't like you. Oh. 
I check it once, then I check it twice. Oh, look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Look what you just made me do. I, I don't know why I felt the need to play that. You can't get away from the damn song anyway. I, that was like you, a long. You we played a good yeah. amount. If you if you haven't heard it, I'd like to know where you're living and how you're hiding from it. Um, so Harris writes as we watch Swift's video, and yes, I get it. It's not a crime against art, just a clever, irritating, hyper self-aware pop earworm calculated to prove that she can not only take a joke, but she will own and copyright said joke. We should probably pause to remember that none of this fame-enthralled solipsism emerged from a vacuum. It's the big bang from which Trump, the self-selling celeb, was spawned, and his presidency didn't invent this grim and cynical strain of pop culture. It's just given it a good home. Um, and then none of this exists without our complicity. We may smirk at it, but it smirk writes back, smirks right back. And there's a way, Irene, in which this song immediately became this sort of all-purpose trope, right? I mean, it got applied to Trump's uh, DACA approach. Exactly. It trumps, trumps everything, which is the, it's the opposite of personal responsibility. You know, look what you made me do. It's just it's your fault. Whatever I did, it's your fault because I have no responsibility. I'm just reacting. And so to me, it's about the isolation that we that we have from our own inner selves, you know, that he has from his own inner self and that in a way the culture is sort of moving more and more toward, it seems to me, of just sort of like denying our inner our inner you know our deepest sort of emotional realities and inner life in the name of these of just external appearances and spectacles and so instead of saying like why did i do that it's like you made me do it end of discussion it's your fault yeah i mean kate i feel like if this the thing does turn into an anthem for the moment not only is it musically a bad thing but it might be philosophically a bad thing you know, um, before I came in today, I was listening to uh, Dave Zyron uh, talking about the incident that happened right after the uh, Mayweather-McGregor fight where uh, Michael Bennett was profiled and wrestled to the ground. And according to him, he was, he was threatened uh, by the police with a gun. And when I think about well, what are we be de- being distracted from by these spectacles? It's that sort of thing we're being distracted from where uh, uh, people are being profiled, people are being abused. So that's like on a cultural level, you know, like we're not examining what we're really doing, like our inner self as a culture, not I only as individuals. So. Right. I think so. And it's all wrapped up for a bow right there. So you have this this kind of racialized martial arts spectacle. Uh, and Michael Bennett's attending it in Vegas. There's this moment. Mark, Michael Bennett is a very talented uh, defensive player for the uh, Seattle Seahawks. Oh, thank you. Because I was like, who's really, Michael Bennett? Okay, Michael Bennett, <laughs> really big guy. Uh, and suddenly people hear, think they hear shots fired. They start running away from the, where they think the shots are fired. Michael Bennett is one of the guys running away, but he's a big black guy running away. Uh, the cops grab him, throw him to the ground, and according to him, really do kind of verbally abuse him and also physically abuse him. Um, and so you have it kind of all there, right? I mean, you've got the spectacle and the reality uh, within about mm-hmm. a, you know 500 yards of each other. So I, just as we wrap this up, because we do have to switch topics. So Carolyn, the other part of this is that notion that Harris brings up that you know when you start to have this culture, a musical culture mainly, that that is increasingly 
absorbed with the artist's persona almost to the exclusion of all else, you know, that Taylor Swift, Swift whether, you, whether you like it or not, her, her oeuvre is increasingly and, and Katy Perry's oeuvre and Kanye's oeuvre and whoever else you want to toss in there. It's, it's being kind of eaten up by its own interest in itself and these, these various beefs, most of which seem theatrical rather than real, that it seems unlikely that you're going to produce anything interesting or exciting under these circumstances, no matter how talented you are. What's your Well, that's how I feel about it. I see Irene's perspective of this song, the the, like phrasing of look what you made me do being some sort of statement for where we're at right now. But I can't separate this song from Taylor Swift. I know we don't want to talk about Taylor Swift, but like this song is, is just, it is her. This is the, this is a woman expressing her own, you know, kind of, like I'm moving on. I'm better than this now. I'm in a tub with diamonds. Like <laughs> I just can't take away her and her the whole like this whole like melodrama she has created around her persona and her interactions with other celebrities. And it just it all feels like over oh that's overplayed to me. And then in this video as I had said in the email, that I feel that it it just it was slapped through with all this symbolism that we were supposed to go through. There were all these blogs that were like breaking down all the symbols in Taylor Swift's video. I mean, it was like they were trying to analyze it like it was a great piece of literature in their college lit class. Like that was, to me, absurd because it is not some great. I think there have been great there are great pieces of music that speak to where we're at in a moment and I just don't feel like this deserves that. Although it may get this moment better than the great pieces of music too. Sometimes bad art gets the moment better than great art. We do have to move on here. So one thing that we know is about the movie business, which we're also going to be talking about a little bit in the second segment. It's so bad that America's three biggest theater chains have lost roughly $4 billion in market value since May. The reason for that is ticket sales are down. It's the Movie, the summer movies have underperformed after a pretty languid series of movies leading up to the summer. Something is really wrong. Everybody's looking for somebody to blame. This business is really uh, in a lot of trouble. I was at one of the multiplexes last night to watch when for, there were like maybe 40 people in the entire multiplex if you added up all the theaters. So mm-hmm. that would worry me. So. The argument that's being used, uh, since you made a noise, Irene, I'm going to start with you. The argument, that, one of the arguments that being u- is being used is that more and more Rotten Tomato scores are being attached to people's first engagement with these movies, whether they're seeing them on Google or buying tickets on Fandango. And it's just hard to get yourself, no matter how much you like the Transformers, to buy a ticket to a movie that has a 16 percent Rotten Tomatoes rating that this, first of all, commodification uh, and dataization of critical assessment uh, has bec- is weird and, and then has become so widespread that it's a real problem for movies. I mean, I think that's a, it, that, that's a big jump and it's an interesting jump because I think part of why people don't, there's so many reasons why not enough people are going to movies and I think it's, it's horrible. I, I, you know, I hate, I hate it when there's only 10 people in the, in the room with me when I'm watching it. But um, but to jump to that, I mean, I can't it can't be because of Rotten Tomatoes, you know, because then that would mean that if something got a really high rating, the theaters would be full. But they aren't. Or are they? I don't know. This fascinates me because I hate going to the movies. I have seen more (laughs) movies thanks to doing this show than I probably 
ever would have. And I have a How whole... How could you hate going to the movies? I have a list. I have a whole list of things. Like, one is I hate if you have to go to the bathroom, you can't, like, pause it. So you have no control. So you always inevitably <laughs> miss something important. Um, it, it's expensive. And it's probably expensive because I go, I, like, go and binge on like popcorn and then you know you it's salty so you need a sweet thing on the side and then you get a drink or which whatever. Which makes you go to the bathroom. Which makes you go to the bathroom so it's all <laughs> this and then also like what happens if you go to see a movie and it's just awful and now you've paid all this money and you have your popcorn and like you're probably there with a friend who likes it and now you're trapped. I don't know. I get a lot of anxiety <laughs> going to the movie so maybe it's people like me. <laughs> that is sort of a millennial perspective, right? Yeah, okay. Well, do you look at Rotten Tomatoes before you go see a movie? I, I mean, yes and she no. She only goes to first five movies because we make her go. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So well, she might not be the best test case. You, if you knew, if somebody told you, you know what, this got 98%, would you be more likely to go? Probably not because I have really lowbrow taste. Like that's the other thing. Like the movie that I want to see is not going to be – it's not going to be. She wants to see Tulip Fever. <laughs> we we were actually thinking about doing uh, Tulip Fever as a show, and I thought, well, we could have Jacques and Carolyn and somebody <laughs> else on who they really enjoy how terrible this movie is. Um, well, I, I don't know. Kate, you were talking, we were talking before we went on the air. Like everybody, whatever the rating system is, and, and Rotten Tomatoes wasn't the beginning. I've lived with radio ratings. Writers live with box office sales and bestseller lists and stuff like that. It's in, inevitably the response is to game it somehow as opposed to saying, you know what? What we're going to do? We're going to make really great movies. <laughs> we're going to make sure everybody goes to see them. And, and the New York Times piece talks about how the, the studios, their response is, well, how can we figure out Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think we need to figure out who their audience is. I think part of the, the, the dilemma that Hollywood filmmakers face is that, uh, as Carolyn just pointed out, maybe millennials just aren't that interested and maybe they should be gearing more movies to boomers and and movie fans who really like going to the movies, like me. I and love me. going to the movies yeah, me too. because of the, the time I was when I first saw a foreign film and going with my mom and all of that. I love going to the movies. But going back to my point, I think Hollywood filmmakers face a dilemma. They're going for the big, big box office that's going to sell to all the 14-year-old boys worldwide yeah. but maybe they're not so interested in going and maybe it's 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 the boomers and the film fans that really want to see the movies and, and I, they're two different audiences yeah two I, different well tastes. that's true i mean and i'm i know which you know i'm a boomer so but i think going back to rotten tomatoes you know i think it's also maybe boomers would be more would be less likely to think about rot, to worry about rotten tomatoes i'm not sure that that would be a sweeping generalization but i think in a way, Rotten Tomatoes is connected to look what you made me do in the sense that they're telling you <laughs> if it's going to be worth your while or not, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to some of us like me who might say, wow, it only got 63 audience rating, but how am I going to feel about it? Maybe I'll have a very different response. So I'd rather see what my response is. I'd be curious about my own. If, if, I mean, I guess I would have to have some reason to think it would be worth my while to see a movie, but... Once I did, I don't think the Rotten Tomato score would really change it because I would want to compare my own reaction to that as opposed to have somebody tell me what I'm supposed to think of it and then just leave well, it at that. I thought it was that. interesting in the article where it said how 
that they think that maybe the Rotten Tomatoes, when it has a low rating, that people feel embarrassed about buying a ticket then because they're like, oh, I'm an idiot if I see this movie that nobody liked. But why would that make you an idiot? Why I, wouldn't that I make don't know. you an in- interesting, unique it, indi- exactly. individual? Exactly. But I think that there, there are a lot of people who get so concerned about what other people think that it clouds their own judgment. Yeah. So um, Colin, I think that's Do true. we know who the Rotten Tomatoes voters are? Yes, we do. And the, this rather lengthy Times piece that ran yesterday uh, gets into that a lot. And it's an interesting question. Before I say that, I just want to say that you – it's sort of like, like watching Dr. Rudolf Heimlich perform the Heimlich maneuver. You just watch Irene Papoulis execute what we on the nose call a Papoulian through line, which is she got from Taylor Swift's Look What You Made Me Do to Rotten Tomatoes. So, I mean, everybody on the nose does it. But when, when Heimlich does the Heimlich maneuver, it's, just, it's a bigger <laughs> deal somehow. So um, – yeah. So one of the things that they said in this in, said in this Times article is that there's, there's a lot of reviewers who are from sites that you've never heard of or sites that were maybe even invented to participate somehow or other in the world of Rotten Tomatoes, but also that the Rotten Tomatoes company, which takes this very seriously and they're all cinephiles and, you know, that they wanted to get critics. Critics are overwhelmingly male. Movie critics, the movie critics that everybody knows are overwhelmingly male. They're overwhelmingly white. They wanted to get more of those critics into the mix. But somehow the wide net that they cast for critics, and it's a really, I forget the number, but it's a really wide, there's a lot of people that Rotten Tomatoes considers a critic, um, means that rather than hearing from maybe the three movie critics that you really like and trust, you're hearing from all kinds of people who, and a lot of whom have an incentive in order to maintain their position on the Rotten Tomatoes, you know, landscape or radar screen to give good reviews. Sometimes they're being squired to early screenings because they're known to give good reviews. I mean, once again, a lot of that kind of gaming. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. But what does it mean that, as I just learned, that that Rotten Tomatoes is owned by Fandango? Right. And which also, there's also some cross-ownership to NBC or, or some studio. NBC, anyway, to, yeah, Universal. Yeah. yeah, it means it's all corrupt, you know. <laughs> and I hate the way they reduce. I mean, I love film reviews. You know, a good film review really gets into into a lot of nuances. And uh, and what they try to do, no matter how many nuances it has, they reduce it to one sentence, right? And th- one good or bad. Not only that, yeah, not only that, but they reduce it to. Uh, and there's stuff about this in the article. The Rotten. flipping from a green splatter to a red tomato happens at sixty, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're at fifty nine. I mean, you know, the incentive to find some way to get to 60, uh, even if you have to invent critics who don't exist or something. But I agree. We have to take a break here. But I, for me, the thrill of a movie review is often that it's well written or it challenges something that I thought was true or and none of that. There's no room for any of that in the yeah. Rotten Tomatoes world. All right. We're going to talk about an actual movie when we come back. Do you hear the critics sing? Sing about how they don't agree. It is a metaphor for life when mouths are big and speech is free. When the pundits all concur, you need to pinch yourself because you must be dreaming if that happens, it never does. We are back. We are doing the nose with us, with me to do the nose, and guess with you to do the nose too, uh, is uh, Irene Papoulis. 
Kate Russian uh, and Carolyn Payne. Um, we're going to talk about the movie Wind River right now. I'm going to try without notes to sum up Wind River. Uh, it is kind of a noir thriller, although it takes place amid a lot of snow and daylight uh, for the most part. Uh, it takes place in Wyoming uh, on a Native American reservation and the surrounding area. It takes place in the wilderness. It is essentially the story of two different men grieving the violent deaths uh, of their daughters in different ways. It's also the story uh, of one of those two men, a game warden played by Jeremy Renner, trying to solve the second murder, uh, the murder of a young woman named Natalie. Uh, he is assisted uh, in this by, first of all, the wonderful Graham Greene as this rather stolid uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs police chief, uh, and uh, Elizabeth Olsen, uh, who is an FBI agent, uh, very much in the mold of Clarice Starling from uh, from <laughs> uh, from Silence of the Lambs. Um, so anyway, uh, with a little bit less ado than that, uh, let's hear a little clip. This you're going to hear Jeremy Renner at the crime scene. He's um, investigating. He's looking. He's a tracker. He's his job is to hunt predators who are killing livestock. So he hunts wolves and mountain lions for the most part. Uh, he's come upon the scene of this murdered girl. He knows the girl. I think you hear him talking to Elizabeth Olsen. Uh, you probably hear her voice too, although she's, I think, mainly talking to me uh, when she talks in movies. But um, And uh, so you'll hear him describe the scene as he sees it. Over here, see this one? See how the toes turned out? The front is much deeper than the back. That's says she's running. I'll show you. She ran until she dropped here. See the pool of blood where her face hit the snow. Now it gets 20 below here at night. So if you fill your lungs up with that cold air and you're running, you can freeze them up. Your lungs fill up with blood. You start coughing it up. So wherever she came from, she ran all the way here. Her lungs burst here. She curled up in that tree line and drowned her own blood. Well, how far do you think someone could run barefoot out here? Oh, I don't know. How do you gauge someone's will to live, especially in these conditions? But I knew that girl. She's a fighter. So no matter how far you think she ran, I can guarantee you she ran further. All right. So um, that's Jeremy Renner uh, as Corey, uh, this game warden. Um, I, I'll just – before I get you guys started, I'll lay my cards on the table. I loved this movie. I consider it the best movie I've seen in 2017. I thought it had everything that I was looking for. Uh, if you are like Carolyn and you don't like to go to the movies and movie theaters, you make an exception for this one. It's not going to work very well or as well on a TV set. So much of it, this is the way in which the landscape, uh, the environment, the milieu become, to use the old cliche, another character in the movie. Um, so but I have much more to say about it, but I don't want to blather on. Should we, should we begin with the area where we don't agree or should we talk first about what we all liked? All right. I'll make um, it. Okay, go ahead. No, yeah. You, you decide. Um, well, we can talk about what we all liked. I mean I'm, I can talk about what I like. You yeah. want to do that? Yeah. You okay. guys? Okay. 
I, you know, and so it's interesting because I feel like um, Jeremy Renner was talking to me too. I mean, you know, there's there's mm. something, and hearing that voice just now again, I don't, I didn't know him from other movies. Apparently, he's like in a lot of famous movies. That the Hurt I Locker. Seen. Oh yeah, that's right, The Hurt Locker, and I yeah, that was a lot. It somehow I didn't make the connection, but it's such a type, such an attra- so for me, emotional truth is probably the first thing that I like and respond to in a movie and I felt like the emotional truth especially of his character was so sort of rich and interesting and there's something so attractive about a certain about him that he's such a type of attractive man that's interesting a, a certain um, attractive in a certain way you know like a sort of laconic he doesn't say a lot but he's really thinking and he's, he's like really the strong, feeling silent type I was really getting passionate. like a Gary yeah. Cooper yeah, exactly. And and then the way he acted that role was so effective to to sort of be that character. So and and so his emotional truth is something I really really liked. Yeah, I I thought that that the soundtrack, the music, the cin- cinematography, I thought all of that was very engaging. Uh it was a very thoughtful movie and I really appreciated that and liked it for that reason as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the cinematography. I, I sat, I was cold the whole time. Like it, but not just in the like you. It really it set the stage for me. Now, I I liked this movie, and I don't often like a lot of the things that I have to see here. But I. <laughs> <laughs> I have to see it. didn't contain as much baggage as it sounded like it did. <laughs> yeah. No, but I I did really. I was excited when I saw the previews for this. Uh, to to see this because I do like a good thriller. Um, but what I thought that was so well done here for me was that it just, it wasn't, the, it was those quiet moments, which sometimes for me in a thriller, like break up the action and just don't, I, I'm not as engaged. The, the quiet moments in this movie I found to be more engaging than the like violent scenes, than the, the heightened scenes. Mm-hmm. I really did think that there was some interesting performances that I, I and it all was kind of set in this I, I loved how it was filmed yeah. so let me make a couple of quick points and then you guys can uh, go to town on the, 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 the Bechdel test stuff here which I think is really interesting and I think I, so, I'm so happy to be doing the show with three women because you saw this very differently than I did I, I did see this as really containing a lot of the elements of noir cinema there's that sense of the power structure structure brushing up against a group of very marginalized people with less to lose. You see that a lot in noir. And you see this. You also see, and I'm not spoiling anything, I don't think, that ultimately the person who's trying to be a moral agent, whether it's you know uh, Philip Marlowe as a private dick or an FBI agent or, or a game warden, they can maybe make some tiny improvements in one aspect of the moral decay that they confront, but they can't really change the equation. They can't change the dark architecture of the world that they're in. I thought it got some of that stuff really, really well. I will say it's directed by Taylor Sheridan, who has never directed a movie before. This is so sure-handed in a lot of ways. Although, was I the only person bothered by the very jittery handheld cameras in certain scenes? No, see, I liked that. Uh, I thought that that added something to it for me. It had that element of this realism. Um, I, I, I dug that. Okay, good. So, so see, that's a reason to go to the movies. Um, uh. He uh, <laughs> He's best known as a screenwriter for Sicario, which has a very similar kind of empowered 
female uh, FBI agent kind of person, played by Emily Blunt there. And the movie Hell or High Water, which is very similar to Wind River and it has an interest in people left behind in whatever American progress has been made and possible ways that that can sort of build up into violence. Uh, almost everybody in this movie, uh, except for the Elizabeth Olsen character, has been left behind in one way or another. Um, so – and I also – I mean other people have made the analogy to, to Clarice Sterling in Silence of the Lambs. There's certainly a scene in this movie that is an homage to Silence of the Lambs. I won't say what it is but I think everybody sitting here knows the scene I'm talking about. It's just absolutely that scene all over again. Um, but so Kate, I want you to get us started here because you were the one who brought this up. It's a movie about women's tragedies uh, and about the tragic ends uh, of two women. But you feel as though it fails – to be ultimately a woman's movie. Well, it's 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 about not just two women but two Native American women who died very horrible deaths. It's it's a film about Wind River is a film about grief. Uh, it's a film about grief of fathers and it's it's a film about relationships between men. And yet I I felt that the um the Native American women characters in the film were cardboard cutouts and virtually silent. And except for one scene between the mother of, um, of, of a girl and the, the FBI agent um, where she has to give her, her daughter's uh, uh, snowsuit. I know that's not what you call this. It's adults. Yeah. But the granddaughter's. The granddaughter's snowsuit and, and, and the woman – the mother, the grandmother is very strong and tough and they're talking about this article of clothing and she says, remember, it's not a gift. You need to give this back. So that was the one scene where there was a Native American woman speaking and speaking strongly for herself and I think it just wouldn't have taken too many more minutes to change that dynamic. We have another mother and she is in the si in suicidal silence and grief-stricken over the death of her daughter, which that – all right, I can go with that. But then when we go back to her, she's basically a lump in the bed and we don't even see her face and she doesn't speak at all. And that's where I tipped over and had an issue with this film being ostensibly about the disappearance of Native American women, not really giving Native American characters, women characters, much room to speak. Right. So for me, that was about halfway through the movie as well as where I realized this is about and, – and I mean it, they even say – I think that it's based on a true story, right, mm -hmm. that it is. Um, but I, I felt so like – I felt – that it really could have been told from a different perspective. For me, about halfway through, I was like, I wish that the Elizabeth Olsen character was more of the, the main character in this or that it was told through a different perspective, like done with more flashbacks so that you had these female characters as more of telling something in the story. And that was, for me, what made the movie, I liked the movie, like I said, I, I did like it and, and I thought it was beautiful and very powerful. But for me, it would have gone from being like a good movie to being I think I would have been really wowed by it had it been told with a more female perspective 
dealing with these issues. And more of the Native um, perspective in Absolutely. general because it's, it's on a reservation. And um, but we don't you know, it's sort of, you know, you could say it's like, you know, the white man that saves the day kind of, a, you know, sort of, um, plot. And why, you know, the guy, you know, the um, his friend, the Native American guy was a really interesting character that we didn't get to know as much as I would have liked to mm-hmm. also. But also back to the women, though, with the Elizabeth Olsen character, in a way, we, we saw her through the male gaze, I would say, you know, we didn't learn very much about her. In the yeah, way that but, we learned about him, but which male gaze did we see her through? Because well, we know which male gaze. Collins. Okay. So I have a little bit of a problem. Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing a therapist, um, <laughs> but it seems to be the male gaze of the character played by Jerry Renner is the male gaze of somebody looking on a surrogate for his daughter. Uh, he has lost two young women who are very, very important to him. Uh, he the, the toughness, as you heard in that clip, of the second woman is also very, very important to him. You know, the fact that she she was incredibly tough, and he's now looking at this other young. Woman woman uh, who's pitted against the same landscape and wondering, and we hear a speech at the end where he basically answers that question, but she's, he's wondering, is she going to be tough enough? But I don't see anybody except maybe creepy, weird subsidiary guys in this movie directing the typical male gaze at Elizabeth Olsen, and certainly not Jeremy Renner. Not the typical male gaze, but the male gaze in the sense of we don't really, get, you know, it's sort of like, a t- is she going to be tough or not? Yeah. That's the question. It's not... What is going on with her? Where did she really come from? What was her emotional real reaction? What were her real emotions during the thing aside from I should be tough? Right. You know. And and that's interesting too if you start to bring in Clarice because Clarice's backstory was her vulnerability, right? Lecter in in figuring out who she really was and wanting to know more about who she was was frankly assaultive. That, that's his assault on her. The more that he can drag out of her, the more that he can deduce, the more he can play her. You know? and, and so you could make the argument anyway that knowing so little um, is – so little is known about, uh, about Jane, the character played by Elizabeth Olsen, is it, uh, sort of allows her to be what she really is in this movie, which is, which is kind of just an FBI agent being tested with a, by a very unfamiliar situation. Yeah. Right. A pretty one. You know, yeah. So that's where the male gaze comes she's in. Pretty. And, and, and yeah. we, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't get – except for that one scene uh, with, with the granddaughter's snowsuit, we don't get any – sense of the relationships between or among the women at all. We don't see the two grieving mothers connecting and we don't really see um, the FBI agent connecting with with the other women in the film either. Right. And that's part of the Bechdel test problem, right? Um, all right. We may have to stop there. But I, I would love it if everybody went to see this. Um, not everybody is going to do that just because yeah. I would love it. but. But like Carolyn went. Carolyn went yeah. and didn't have a bad time. No, it was not the worst. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I, I would never have gone to see it if I had just seen the little clip that's on TV. Never. I, when right. I say all the guns, forget it. But it's worth it. It's not just about guns. Yeah, I, I, I think it's worth it. And just, just to, to put a point on it, it's not – for me, it's not that they're not – there's not enough about the women in the film. There's not enough about the whole community mm. in the film. 
and the women are part of that community. See, I actually, I mean, I, I feel very um, consciousness raised about this. We did this show about the Osage murders earlier, it's a month or so ago, which really got me kind of thinking a lot more about Native American realities. And I actually thought in some ways there's a, I know I said we had to go to break, but there's a young man in this who's in the backseat of a police car who starts just talking about how he sees his options as a Native American. And I thought that was one of the more powerful. I, look what you I made agree. me do. Yeah, look that's what where, you, you know, very, and that's where I see the connection, right? A double Papulian wow. thriller. Morality, you're watching, yeah, you're watching, the, <laughs> you're the, watching the, Yo-Yo the, Ma play the, the cello. Now, all right, <laughs> we have to go to a break. We're going to come back with some recommendations. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants with help from me, Kion Wolf, and voiceover help from Sir Ray Hardman. The part of Bill Curry was played by Kanye West. On Monday's show, we'll be back with news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. Okay, I have to say something about what we're doing next week, but just out of curiosity here on the panel, I'm sure you're all pretty excited, uh, Irene Papoulis, Kate Russian, and Carolyn Payne, to uh, go to the movies probably this weekend and see It. Are you pretty excited about seeing it? I actually do kind of want to see that. How about pass on it? How about you? It? you Never it? heard of it. Okay. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Never heard of it. Right. So Jonathan Nichol was absolutely convinced that this is the thing that everybody's going to be talking about next week is the reboot of the St- Stephen King. It. I, re- I refuse to go see it. Rebecca Castellani refused to go see it. I'm not going to go see it. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to go see I it. I saw recently. the trailer. Uh, so what we're going to do instead is we're going to go to the uh, re-release uh, of Close Encounters of the, uh, of the Third Kind. It's the 40th anniversary. There's a, a new remastered version. We're going to have a conversation about that. So if you want to join us, I mean not at the movie theaters because we're not even going together, but uh, that's what that'll be about. All right. Time to make some recommendations. Irene Papoulis, what have you got? Okay. I have a few things. Um, first, I, I, Homecoming that Cullen has endorsed before is a is a podcast that's a that's a drama with Catherine Keener. It's so good. I just I listened to the whole thing. It's really good. I, I loved it. Um, I also recently saw the movie Truth or Dare, speaking of the cu- a cultural icon about Madonna, and it was really, really, it was so good. I had seen it before uh, many years ago, but it was so interesting to think about Madonna and who she was in her culture versus now. She was such a great performer, and her sexuality was so different from what we see now, and it's really worth seeing again. Um, and also the story by Miranda July in the in the um, New Yorker from September 4th called The Metal Bowl is a really interesting um, story about sort of Miranda July just kind of always surprises me with her writing because she says things that are that I didn't that I she digs into sort of perceptions that we have about sexuality and in this case, it's a long-term relationship that she's kind of digging into in a way that I think is really, really interesting. And you can see it, read it online. It's called The Metal Bowl. All right. Read Miranda July in September. Kate, what have you got? All right. I just happened to have read The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, a novel by Sherman Alexi, who is uh, from the Spokane Reservation. And uh, reading this book and, and seeing uh, Wind River took me back to uh, the film based on uh, Sherman Alexie's screenplay called Smoke Signals, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. which was an yeah. early, early indie film with an uh, Indian cast and crew. I think Graham Greene may be in that one too. I'm not sure. But, he probably yeah. is. And that's based on Sherman Alexie's book of short stories, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fist Fight in Heaven. And then I checked out the um, poetryfoundation.org, 
and they have a Native American poetry and culture section with a whole list of uh, Native American poets, including Lucy Tapahanso, who is the inaugural poet laureate of the Navajo Nation, and uh, Linda Hogan, who's Chicksaw, and many, many other writers. Hmm. All right. And Carolyn, what have you got? All right. Well, I have kind of a silly little endorsement, but uh, this week uh, is my favorite news story to come out of this week and potentially in in a while is uh, just Google Jezebel girlfriend's poop. The Jezebel, Jezebel is one of the places that ran this story. I was going to Google that anyway. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Basically, there is an amazing, it is a true story. It happened to this poor girl. It'll make you feel like every bad date you've ever been on is okay. It will make you uh, get a good life lesson about sometimes the thing that you try to do to make something better just will make it so much worse. Um, And it'll give you a good laugh and uh, give you something to talk about uh, if you have nothing to talk about at dinner tonight. <laughs> the, the search terms, once again, are... Uh, just look for girlfriend poop. Uh, it, it Je- happen- Jezebel, we need that. Yeah, too. Jezebel ran it. I think girlfriend poop could get a lot. Girlfriend, without yes, do not do that. Girlfriend poop could get a lot. Google Jezebel girlfriend poop, and it right. should come up. All right. Um, uh, first and I'm all, sorry for whatever does come up that right. is not what we're talking about. Right. Uh, whatever <laughs> goes, does come up must go down. Um, all right. So uh, first of all, I want to say something about Heather Brandon. Heather Brandon's uh, last day is here at, WNP, at WNPR is today. Heather Brandon is responsible uh, more than anyone else for the fabulous website that is WNPR.org. She really uh, ushered this company into the digital age uh, by building it. Uh, I'm heartbroken that she's leaving whenever I talk to people about why I'm here and why I feel so happy to be here compared to other places I've worked. I say uh, One of the things I say is look at that website. That's a website of a company, of a digital company that's aware of where it is right now and, and how the marketplace is changing. So uh, I will miss Heather. We will miss Heather. Uh, and uh, I am sorry that she's leaving. Um, when I go to a farewell thing to uh, for Heather today, I'm going to talk to Katie Tularski about Mozart in the Jungle. I'm the world's latest person to this party, but I'm pretty sure she's the person who always talks about it. It's really good. I'm like amazed. This is a series that's on Amazon. It has Gabriel Garcia Bernal. Uh, as some weird, twisted version of the, con- the real-life conductor Dudamel. Uh, it, it's, it's a great series, and I'm hooked on it. I'm just on the first season. Um, from this week, uh, Jean Le Carré on Fresh Air. Listen to this interview and listen to what Le Carré says about Donald Trump. It's the most interesting thing that anybody has said about Donald Trump that I can recall, like wow. ever. Uh, so dig that up. Uh, and then lastly, uh, some of your favorite people from the nose, like Susan Campbell uh, and me and Frank Rizzo and Dan, Dan Har is not really on the nose, but um, we're all and a bunch of other journalists are going to be part of a, a benefit uh, for uh, a gentleman, Joel Bolger, uh, who is fighting cancer and uh, the, some funds need to be raised for that fight. So we're doing a, a comedy thing called the Adorable Care Act. It's at the Mark Twain House this Wednesday night, the 13th at 7 p.m. with and we're going to do comedy with our friends from CT Improv. So each of us will get paired up with somebody from CT Improv. Also, Bob Engelhart, Doobie McDowell, lots of people like that. So you could probably call the Mark Twain House for tickets. They're available somehow. Uh, and it's a great cause, too. So come out on Wednesday night and watch us make even bigger fools of ourselves. Thanks so much to Carolyn Payne, Kate Russian, and Irene Papoulis. There, I made it. 